Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Turn in your Bible, Terry. Don't throw your Bible. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Terry's in my group. I can do that to Terry. 1 Samuel chapter, chapter number 1. <clears throat> we've, uh, we've explored a few meltdowns so far. Uh, we've talked about Moses. Um, Moses reminds us that God is with us when we're in the midst of a meltdown. We've talked about Elijah and how going through a meltdown makes you stronger on the other side. Um, last week we talked about, uh, I got two in last week, <laughs> we talked about uh, Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, and they kind of remind us to pay attention to the warning signs. Um, they kind of showed us the ugly sides of meltdowns. Um, but tonight it's a little bit different. Tonight I want to talk about Hannah. Um, and tonight, um, Hannah's kind of a, um, a breath of fresh air. Um, and she demonstrates what it's like, I guess we could say the right way, to go through a meltdown. Um, and do it with poise, with grace, um, with perseverance. Um, so I want to read first. We're in 1 Samuel um, chapter 1. And so we'll read this first chapter to get our bearings and then we'll get into the text here. Um, so we're in 1 Samuel chapter number 1. It says, Now there was a certain man of Ramathian Zophrim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. And the name of the other was Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah no children. And this man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Paniah, his wife, and to all her daughters, all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a, a single or a double portion for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year uh, when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. And then Elkanah, her husband, verse 8, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah rose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the door of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put away your wine, put, put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman. 
For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And he said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went in her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice in his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned. Then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And when she had weaned him, now they took her up with her three bulls, one of a flower, a skin of wine, brought to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted him my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. So, you know, sometimes meltdowns can be the result of just simply living in a fallen world. I mean, the fallen world is is riddled with many things that can cause meltdowns, things that can overstimulate us, overwork us, overload us, push us to our limits. Um, And... A lot of times, some of those meltdowns are just things that we do. Um, you travel down the interstate going 100 miles an hour, and you get stopped by the police. And the police says, you know, pulls you over, wants your r- r- license and registration, and you have a meltdown, right, because of what happened. But you have no one else to blame but yourself because you knew the law, you knew the limits, We might reason out some of these meltdowns that we have as kinds of natural causes. Sometimes we can be the direct cause, sometimes be indirectly involved. But in this text that we have here in 1 Samuel chapter number 1, it informs us very clearly that the result of Hannah's meltdown has this divine element to it. Something unique, something special. Similar to the story of Nebuchadnezzar that was introduced last week. The only difference is that Hannah is a believer, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, when he had his meltdown, was not. So I want to make sure we understand this clearly. The text tells us that God is already or directly involved in Hannah's meltdown. And when God is involved, there is always, always, always a purpose behind his actions. And his involvement is always for the good of the person. Never for the bad, always for the good. And the unique thing about this passage is that we today, here today, we get to look at it and see it from the beginning that God is directly involved. I don't know if Hannah understood that from the very outset. But we know now and we can look at the text from that point of view. Because according to verse 5, the text informs us that God has shut the womb of Hannah so she can't have any children. That's what it says. There's only one other occasion in Scripture where it says that God shuts the wombs of anybody, and that was in Genesis chapter 20 um, when Abraham takes Sarah again, does the same thing, says, Sarah's my sister, um, did it in Genesis, early in Genesis, and does it again in Genesis 20. 
It says that God shut the wombs of the women uh, uh, in Abimelech's house. There's only one other time it happens. And sometimes we look at these meltdowns, as we've already learned, they can be looked at in a negative light or they can be looked at in a positive light. Um, so God's desire is to conform us to his image and it's a lifelong process and it has bumps and bruises along the way and all of those which include this idea of meltdowns. But the special thing here about Hannah is that she was not responsible for her meltdown, for all the bumps and bruises that came along with it, yet she was a picture of grace, a picture of humility, a grace of poise, a grace of, uh, a picture of perseverance. She, she's showing us and teaching us this is the way, according to the scripture, that you go through a meltdown. This is what happens when you do it the right way, when you do it the biblical way, I guess we might say. And she has much to teach us because of all the whole story in, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and, and, and chapter 2, she responded better to the meltdown than the rest of the characters in the story. Everybody else in the story had issues with what was going on. Hannah, the one who had the meltdown occur to her, she had no problems. Well, she had a problem, but she knew where to get that problem fixed. So I want to look at the characters first. Had Elkanah at Paniah, at Eli, and then I want to save Hannah for last. So as it starts out in verse 1, it says, There was a certain man of this town, a mountain of the mountains of Ephraim. It says a certain man. And it has the idea for Elkanah that he's not really important to the story. That's kind of what the text is telling us. There was a certain man from this town named Elkanah. He's not really important to the story. But there's some irony here. Because Elkanah, he was an Ephraimite. His, he was an uh, Ephraimite by residence and a Levite. It's an important word, a Levite by birth. And so if you follow his genealogical records in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1, I get it, that's New Testament, Old Testament. 1 Chronicles chapter 6, you know, chapter 1 through 9 of 1 Chronicles, all those genealogies that you probably read through your yearly Bible reading, and you're like, oh, when you get to those, you just kind of want to skip through. Well, it's important this time because you can actually use it for something of, of, of value. You can trace Elkanah's genealogy there, and it can be helpful. So as a Levite, Elkanah should be residing in a Levitical town. Well, Ramah is not a Levitical town. So already questions are kind of raised about Elkanah. Why is he not where he's supposed to be? Why is he not following the laws of a Levite? However, according to verse 3, we know that he did have a spiritual desire to lead his family. I mean, each year he takes his family to worship, doesn't he? Each year he takes his family to Shiloh to worship the Lord. Shiloh is a place about 15 miles north of where his hometown of Ramah was. It was the place where the tabernacle was set up. When the Israelites came into the land after the leadership of Joshua, they set up the tabernacle in Shiloh about two centuries earlier. It becomes a place of, of where Israel goes for their national life, for their celebrations. It's also the place where Eli the priest was. So it's an important place. But Elkanah was also trying to do right, do right by his two wives. So it's understood that in this context that because Hannah couldn't have children, Elkanah takes another wife. He takes Paniah, and Paniah is able to bear children. Um, and everyone in the family has something of an offering to offer to the Lord. 
Um, and it says that in the text of the New King James here that I'm reading from, it says that, um, that she was loved. Hannah was loved by Elkanah so much that Elkanah gave her a double portion. Other translations actually say it was just a single portion of an offering. I'm not going to argue between which translation is better than another translation. Whichever you favor, at least you can agree on the fact that Hannah was the favored wife. Um, I know that didn't sound good, but that's what the text says. Um, and so uh, you move down to verse 8, and, and Elkanah comes and finds Hannah in this, in this meltdown um, and asks her why. Now you think, shouldn't he know why? I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? You know, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart grieved? He should have stopped there, right? He should have stopped there, ladies. And he keeps going. Um, and he says, am I not better than 10 sons? Wow. I mean, and you think about it, I mean, he doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. He doesn't. And, and he seems somehow insensitive. I think his, his words were sincere, but he, he just somehow seems insensitive to Hannah's suffering. Since he could not give her children, he made an effort maybe to encourage her as best as, as he could, but even his best efforts seemed cold, cold-hearted, you know, insensitive, calloused. Um, and I think when we witness others going through meltdowns, insensitivity is the last thing that we need to portray. Um, you know, we have no idea what they're going through. We have no idea how long they have may, may have been going through that particular meltdown. I, I think we just need to avoid spouting off some of those words that discourage them. That means if you feel the need to comfort someone else that you know who's going through a meltdown, take your time. Understand the meltdown. Uh, choose your words carefully or choose your words not at all, I guess we should say sometimes. And offer them gently because every meltdown is different. And sometimes your presence is more important than your words. And I kind of think that's what Elkanah should have done. His presence there with Hannah should have been enough. He should have sat with his wife because as a man, he's going to be incapable of understanding Hannah's suffering. He is. He's incapable because he doesn't know what it's like. He just can't understand it. But Elkanah here has just that insensitivity, that callousness. It's not the kind of, of reaction that we were hoping from her husband. But nonetheless, it's the reaction that happens. And then you've got Paniah. Paniah, on the other hand, um, while she didn't know the feeling of not being able to have children, um, she understood what it would be like not to have children. Uh, and she didn't offer or choose to offer Hannah any comfort. Uh, she rather chose to press in on Hannah's wound in a manner that can only be described as cruel. I mean, the text says in verse 6, it says, um, her rival provoked her severely. I mean, can you imagine the harsh and hurtful words um, just of that, knowing that's the one sore spot and you go and you, it's like when somebody's injured, you know, you watch the movies and somebody's injured and they want to be really cruel to them, right? And so they go and they put their thumb on the injured spot. Somebody's been 
maybe wounded or shot, and they just put it on the injured spot to make it so much worse. That's what's happening here. Uh, one author described the dialogue this way. What have you got to thank the Lord for, Hannah? It's a bit of a joke, Hannah. You coming here to give thanks to the Lord year after year? When the one thing you want, he won't give you. The Lord has closed your womb, Hannah. Isn't it obvious that he doesn't care about you? Now, I don't know if that's between the lines, but that's one author's kind of description of it. And these insults appear to be particularly hurtful, especially during the annual festival times when it's celebrated to have all your children and your family with you in Paniah's case. Your maternal blessings are being rewarded. But here, Hannah's barrenness was on display. And don't forget the fact that, you know, this treatment of Hannah is not done at home. Um, it's done on the yearly visit to Shiloh. And maybe even done in a public setting. So you can imagine um, what this... I mean, I can't, I can't imagine it fully, but I hope you ladies can imagine it. Um, and as a result of all this abuse and judgment from Paniah, Hannah lost the desire to participate in any of the celebrations, and I don't blame her at all. And she would not eat, it says. And I think it's quite clear that during a meltdown, the last person you want to come into contact with is someone like Paniah. I mean, that's the last person you want to come into contact with. You're going through a meltdown, they just push into it. And they just want to make it even worse. You want to avoid them, and you want to get far away from them as you possibly can. Judgmental, cruel, waiting for the right moment to push into your deepest wound. No, thank you. I'll avoid you at all costs. You know, we need to be thoughtful of others who are experiencing that meltdown. I mean, it's not bad for us to rejoice in our own personal blessings, and we should um, rejoice in what God has done for us and what God is doing for us. But we also must be sensitive to others who, in the midst of a meltdown, so, so there's a balance here, and it's a balance that's seen in these mature believers. And, and sadly here, Paniah should be the one comforting Hannah because Paniah has the children. Paniah has something that Hannah doesn't have. But from all that we know, all that what's said in the scripture about Paniah is that she's negative. She's graceless. She's tactless. Um, ironically, the only good thing about Hannah in here, excuse me, about Paniah in here, is that she drove Hannah to her knees. That's about the only good thing of what Paniah did. Um, so there's Elkanah, there's Paniah, and then there's Eli. Good old Eli here. You know, regardless of how Hannah felt, she managed to pull things together and to share at this meal in Shiloh. I mean, as horrible as she felt, she managed just to pull herself together. And she had this celebration here in verse 9. Hannah rose after they finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And she goes and excuses herself to go to the tabernacle to pray for prayer. And, and just so you know, during this time, uh, a lot of the prayers that you would pray were prayers that were vocalized, were out loud. And to this day, many of the Jews do the same thing. Um, so because Hannah's prayer was not vocalized from her heart, and it was from her heart, Eli assumed that she was drunk. It was like, you know, you're praying quietly, like we do sometimes. And it appears odd, right? Here's God's leader, right? God's leader of the nation of Israel, God's leader of the people. 
And, you know, he looks at Hannah and says, I think you're drunk. Um, it appears odd, but maybe the bad behavior of his sons, if you read about Eli's sons and weren't the best sons, if you read about Eli's sons, maybe he's pushing that on, Han- oh, excuse me, on Hannah. Maybe he thinks that uh, Hannah's a, a wayward person like, like his sons. Um, still, here's God's leader, right? Judging Hannah before he has all the information. And to add insult to injury, if you think about this, Hannah has just offered a prayer that says that if she has a child, she wants that child to be dedicated to the Lord and given over to the care of the Lord, which would be Eli, which would be him. <laughs> so maybe Eli's misunderstanding is just temporary and he corrects his, his, his thinking here as he hears a little bit about um, Hannah's situation. Um, but it just makes you think, right? Once Hannah explains her meltdown, Eli responds differently, probably with the way he should have spoken at first, go in peace. May the Lord answer your prayer. Little does Eli know. He's endorsed a prayer that would eventually lead to his own replacement because Samuel actually comes and replaces Eli. So you've got three characters in, in this story um, that just don't respond well. They're just ones that you think would respond well. A husband, another wife, as unique as that is, and, and then the priest, right? You'd think those three close to Hannah would respond well to her, would say, Hannah, let's, let's pray about this. Let's talk to the Lord about this. Or at least be a shoulder to cry on or at least show some compassion. Um, and they don't. And here's Hannah. But she doesn't, um, I don't know, she just, she's a picture of grace, of humility, of poise. She just doesn't fall. She doesn't fall apart like we probably all would. So let's look at Hannah. Let's see how she responded to her meltdown because it's her response that's proper. It becomes biblical. I've written down a few statements that we'll talk about um, for the remainder of our message tonight about Hannah's response to her meltdowns. So the first one is this. So you can throw the first one up there. The first one is this. Hannah doesn't complain about her meltdown. She just doesn't complain about it. You know, we're going to experience multiple meltdowns in our lives. We will, if you haven't already. <laughs> we're going to experience them. Jesus never said it was going to be easy when we pick up our cross and follow him. He never said it was going to be easy. So why should we waste valuable energy, valuable energy, with a complaining spirit, a grumbling spirit? You know, when I think about complaining, when I think about grumbling, I think about the nation of Israel. And I think about that time when the nation of Israel crossed and God did this great miracle of the Red Sea and they walked through on dry land across the Red Sea. And the Red Sea waters folded on the Egyptian army so they couldn't follow. And they get three days into the desert, just three days later, and they already start grumbling, griping, and complaining. Just three days is all it took. Three days of trust. It's kind of like, okay, Lord, three days is all I've got of trust. After that, I'm going to start grumbling and complaining. And we're the same way, right? We do the same thing. Except sometimes for us it takes three minutes (laughs) or three hours, right? And... Hannah doesn't complain, though. And of all the people to complain, she'd be the one to do it. Because 
her meltdown is not something that she caused. Or indirectly, even the text says there's a divine element to it. God's the one that put it there. Of all the ones that could complain, she could complain. But she waits patiently to learn. It seems that she has this spirit of teachability that we talked about. And she wants to learn what God is teaching her. And we should have that very same attitude. She just doesn't complain about the meltdown. We need to stop complaining as believers about the meltdowns that we have. Because when the world looks at us and looks at the way we handle meltdowns, they say, nope, I don't want anything to do with that. If you're going to act that way when something bad happens in your life, that's not for me. A second thing here. Hannah doesn't allow the response of others to derail her faith. She doesn't allow the response of others to derail the faith. And how the characters in Hannah's life responded to her meltdown would have pushed many people over the edge. Your husband that's saying, hey, I'm better than 10 sons. What about me? Aren't I good enough to be a son? He truly just doesn't get it. Paniah, who just pushes on her, her, her sore of not being able to have children just pushes on it, just every opportunity she gets to exploit it. I mean, and then Eli, who thinks that, that she doesn't know what she's saying. She's drunk. She's, uh, you know. I mean, an insensitive husband, a rival wife who constantly wants to be reminded of her barrenness, and God's leader who assumes she's drunk. I mean, you look at the people in her life, and you look at their responses. I mean, she could have easily has used the excuse that no one understands me, and we would all have agreed completely. And, you know, there are people in this world who are looking for ways to derail our faith. And what better time for them to strike when then you're in the meltdown mode? It's a perfect time for them to come after us. Number three, and I'm, this one's, This one's pretty powerful. Third, Hannah faithfully attended the worship feast every year. Just let that sink in. The annual feast had a vivid way of reminding Hannah that she didn't have children. Every year, she went on that painful journey, knowing that she'd have to endure the torturous words of Paniah. She knew it was coming. She knew it was coming. She knew it was coming. But she still went. She still went. She didn't stop worshiping God. And that's a big, 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 big deal. She still went. You know, you're in the midst of a meltdown. The last thing you should do is stop worshiping God, stop reading your Bible, stop praying, stop coming to church. Those things are necessary for your spiritual survival. You've got to keep moving forward. She knew the pain, the misery, the suffering that's going to come, but she went every single time. And we don't know how long that was that she went. It could have been for the last five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Who knows? Every single year. She faithfully attended the worship service every single, the worship feast every single year, knowing what was going to happen. A fourth statement here. Hannah doesn't avoid going to the one responsible for her meltdown. You know, God was the one who had closed Hannah's womb. 
He was kind of the one responsible, the responsible party, we might say, in this meltdown. And we don't know if Hannah knew it. She may have known it. She may not have known it. But we definitely do. And she sought the Lord in prayer. She went to the one who could fix the problem, right? Instead of complaining about the problem to others who can't do anything about it, she went to prayer to the one who could do something about it. The point is that she didn't avoid seeking the face of God. She leaned into God. And I've said that and stressed that several times already. We need to stop leaning away from God, but leaning into God in the midst of these meltdowns. He's the one capable of redeeming our plight, so we need to stop avoiding him. And and Hannah knew this better than any of the characters in the story. She knew this better than any one of the characters in this story, and she doesn't avoid it. Sometimes I think we have the tendency to, we're in the midst of a meltdown, and we avoid going to God. We avoid going into prayer to ask for help. Because we think, oh, it's just something simple. We don't really need his help for it. Or we're just, maybe we're embarrassed because it's, it's our fault. We're the culprit of the meltdown, so to speak. And we're embarrassed to go and say, Lord, can you help me with this? I know I did it and I knew it wasn't right to do it, but I still did it anyway. <laughs> can you help me with this? She wasn't afraid to do it. She went right in right into, the, into the, the God who offers grace and mercy and love. A fifth statement. Hannah's vow was not for her benefit. So as part of this story, Hannah makes a vow to the Lord. And, and contrary to what we might think um, on the surface, I don't think Hannah was making a bargain with God. We don't bargain with God. It doesn't work that way. I don't think she was making a bargain with God. If she was, then she was really, really bad at it. I mean, if you think about it, right? If she was good at making bargains, she really is not somebody you want making a bargain for you. Should God grant Hannah her request, she promised the child would be given back to the one who had given him to her. That's not a selfish request. Her desire to dedicate the child to the Lord clearly shows that she was unselfish in her request. When you think about it, uh, we might say, Lord, get me out of this meltdown, right? In a selfish way. I just want to get out of it. Just whatever it takes, whatever I have to do, whatever hoops I have to jump through. Lord, if you do this, then can I get out of the meltdown? If I do this, can I get out of the meltdown? Hannah would say, Lord, how can my meltdown help somebody else? How can my meltdown that I'm going through be beneficial for someone else? Because remember, God can redeem anything for his good. Hannah's vow was not for her own personal self. Hannah's vow was very unselfish because she wanted that vow that she made to be used for something for good, something for God. And it did. It turned out that way. Her vow was not for her benefit. Number six. Hannah's sadness left once she poured her heart out to God. You can't get rid of the sadness until you pour it out. So may it be a lesson to us all. You got to get there. You got to pour it out to God if you want the sadness to leave. Now, it doesn't mean the sadness is going to automatically leave. Sometimes it might take several times. (laughs) Once she laid down her request to the Lord, once she poured out her heart at the tabernacle, she went away unburdened. 
She's no longer despondent because she had met with the one true God who heard her prayers. It reminds me of the story of Hezekiah in in the book of 2 Kings. And and Hezekiah gets this letter from the Assyrian king, King Sennacherib. I always love that name. Don't name your kids that, but Sennacherib, right? Gets the letter from Sennacherib that basically gets a taunt and says that if you don't surrender, I'm going to come in and I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And Hezekiah takes that letter and he goes into the tabernacle and he lays it before the Lord. I mean, he literally lays it on the altar before the Lord. That's what Hannah was doing. She was taking and she was just laying her request before the Lord. She knew that that was the only place where she could get an answer from the Lord. And she pours out her heart to the Lord. And she was so confident, she was so confident that God heard her prayers that her whole countenance changed afterwards. It says she went away and was sad no more. It's like she had taken that great weight and laid it down and said, okay, Lord, you deal with it. And then she left. Kind of like what Jesus says when we're to give our burdens to him and he can carry those weights. We can't carry them. We don't have the shoulders that Jesus has. But if we give our burdens to him, then we can lay it down. No character in the story provided Hannah with any comfort. It was God who provided Hannah with the comfort that she would need. If she just went to lay the burden down, that's all she did. So it's just a simple thing. Sometimes I think we outthink ourselves. And we outthink God. And we outthink that meltdown. There's, there's a really simple way for every meltdown, and Hannah shows it so many times here in this text. Just take that request to the Lord. Just take that request to the Lord. Just take that request to him. And then number seven, Hannah made sure to thank God. This is the big deal, too. We can't leave Hannah without reading her prayer. Her prayer of thanksgiving is recorded for us in Scripture. It's kind of comparable to Mary's prayer in the book of Luke. And you can do studies between those two. There's a lot of good comparisons. Actually, what's interesting about 1 Samuel is that here's Hannah's prayer, and it begins the book of 1 Samuel, a prayer of thanksgiving. And a man by the name of David, you might know him, sounds familiar, right? The end of 2 Samuel, David's prayer, a mighty king closes the book. Here's a mighty male king's prayer that closes the book. Here's a humble woman's prayer that begins the book. So listen to what Hannah says. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumble are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren have borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes the poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among the princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. 
For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of the saints of his saints, but the wickedness shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Sounds like a psalm, doesn't it? From the Psalms. Here's Hannah's prayer. But her prayer of thanksgiving is accompanied by Samuel. It says in verse 11, Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before the priest Eli. That was the moment where the transfer was made, where Hannah brought Samuel to the Lord, brought Samuel to the tabernacle, prayed this prayer, and then they parted. And then Samuel went to go with Eli, and then Hannah and her family, Hannah and, and, and probably Elkanah, they went back home. Further on down the text, of verse 18 of chapter 2, it says, But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own house. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And meanwhile, the child Samuel grew up before the Lord. The rest of the story is that Samuel replaced Eli and then would become what we call the kingmaker. Eli anoints, or excuse me, Samuel anoints David and Saul as Israel enter into the period of the monarchy. And the way that Hannah handled her meltdown is, is it's a model for every single one of us. Uh, her faith in the goodness of God, I mean, her faith in the sovereign God, that God knew exactly what he was doing, oh, as painful as it was, and, and her faith in God's plan, that God knew what he was doing, never, ever wavered. I mean, it didn't. I mean, that's what it says in James when it says, you know, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven by the wind of toss. Hannah is a picture of responding to a mountain in faith. And in a way that, that no other person that we've come into contact with up until this point has responded. Not even Moses has responded this way. Not even Elijah. These are two big names, right? Here is Hannah, just in humility. She responds this way, and she does it no matter what's happening. And so this is why it's so special. This is why this one's so different, is that Hannah is a picture, a great picture, of how you handle a meltdown and how you do it the right way. And obviously there are examples in Scripture of people who have showed us how to handle it the wrong way, and we learn from their experience. We learn, okay, I'm not going to do it that way. I get it. But here's Hannah. Unknown throughout the rest of Scripture. This is where she, her, her story's at. She's the mother of Samuel, and Samuel would go on to anoint two kings of Israel. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. And if it weren't for Hannah's faith and Hannah's belief in God and, 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 and her focus and her poise and her perseverance during the meltdown, then, then Samuel 
may not have been born. It may not happen that way. God could have taken it a different way. But the fact of the problem, the fact of the matter is, may Hannah give us the same strength. May we get the same strength to respond to our meltdowns with the grit and with the grace that Hannah did. And that's the point. If we can't respond to our meltdowns, we're human, we're going to have trouble, we're going to have problems, it's going to twist us the wrong way. But here's just a simple example. Nobody famous, nobody really known, just Hannah. And she shows us, she says, this is how you handle a meltdown. (laughs) Even when God's the one that brings it, this is how you handle a meltdown. And she does it in such an amazing way. 